0: This story is a first-hand account of a voyage to Easter Island. It was written by Mrs. Scoresby-Routledge and published in 1919. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to blend the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to all of the listeners who reached out to say hello during the week. Firstly, thank you to Jordan Haller for making a financial donation to the show and being an ongoing supporter and listener. Thank you to Wallace for reaching out through the website. I hope you and your family are all doing well. Thank you to Instagram user 1millionfrogs for reaching out with an awesome thank you message. I'm glad the podcast is helping you get needed sleep. As always, a huge thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon or Anchor, with a monthly financial contribution. The podcast is completely free, and it's thanks to your support that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. I understand that not everyone can afford a monthly contribution. If you do find the podcast beneficial, there is a small but hugely helpful favour that you can provide. Please share the podcast with a friend, and if possible, kindly leave a review in your podcast app. My goal is to help as many people out there get the rest that they need, and a lot of people are struggling with sleep. If you want, you can always say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Mystery of Easter Island The Story of an Expedition by Mrs. Scoresby Routledge Preface As I sit down to write this preface, there rises before me, not the other side of this London street, but the beautiful view over the harbour of St. Vincent, Cape Verde Islands, as seen from the British Consulate. It was a hot afternoon, but in that shady room, I had found a fellow woman and sympathetic listener. To her, I had been recounting, rather mercilessly as it seemed, the story of our own experiences in the yacht, including the drowning of the tea in Las Palmas Harbour, When I had finished, she said quietly, you are going to publish all this, I suppose. I hesitated, for the idea was new. No, I replied. We had not thought of doing so. Of course, if we have any success at Easter Island, we shall make it known. But this is all in the day's work. I think... She said that there are many who lead quiet, stay-at-home lives who would be interested. Times have changed since 1913. There are now few who have not had adventures, either in their own persons or through those dear to them. Compared with which ours were pleasant play, But I still find that many of those who are good enough to care to hear what we did in those three years ask for personal details. After a lecture given to a learned society, which it had been an honour to be asked to address, I was accosted by a lady, invited for the occasion with the remark, I was disappointed in what you told us. You never said what you had to eat. This, and many similar experiences, are the apology for the trivialities of this work. No attempt has been made to write any sort of a guidebook to the varied places touched at by the yacht. Neither space nor knowledge permitted. All that has been done, either by pen or pencil, is to try to give the main impression left on the mind of a passing dweller in their harbours or anchorages. It has, however, been found by experience that in accounts of travel, the general reader loses much of the pleasure which has been experienced by the writer through knowledge being assumed of the history of the places visited, a knowledge which the traveller himself has absorbed almost unconsciously. Without some acquaintance with past events, the present cannot be understood. At the risk, therefore, of interrupting the narrative, a few notes of such history have been included. In dealing with the main topic of the work an endeavour has been made to give some idea of the problem of Easter Island as the expedition found it and also of its work there. With regard to this part some appeal is necessary to the understanding kindness of the reader for it has not been an easy tale to tell nor one which could be straightforwardly recounted. The story of Easter is as yet a tangled skein. The dim past to which the megalithic works bear witness. The island as the early voyagers found it. Its more recent history and present state. All of these are intermingled threads. None of which can be followed without reference to the remaining clues. For those who would have preferred more scientific and fewer personal details, I can only humbly say wait. There is another volume in prospect with descriptions and dimensions of some two hundred and sixty burial places on the island. Thousands of measurements of statues and other really absorbing matter, the numerical statements in the present book, dealing with archaeological remains, must be considered approximate till it has been possible to go again through the large collection of notes. It is fairly obvious why the writing of this story has fallen to the share of the sole feminine member of the expedition. I had also, what was, in spite of all things, the good fortune to be 14 weeks longer on the island than my husband. They were fat weeks too, when the first lean ones with their inevitable difficulties were passed and the unsettlement towards the end had not arrived. He has, I need hardly say, given me every assistance with this work. Generally speaking, all things which it is possible to touch and handle, buildings, weapons and ornaments, were in his department, while things of a less tangible description such as religion, history, and folklore, fell to my lot. Those who knew him will recognise his touches throughout, and the account of the last part of the voyage, after my return to England, has been written by him. The photographs, when not otherwise stated, are by members of the expedition, The drawings are from sketches made by the author. Those of the burial places are from notebook outlines made in the coursework. The diagrams of the houses and burial places are by my husband. We are deeply grateful, both personally and on behalf of the expedition, for all the aid, both public and private extended to our work in the interests of science. We hesitate to allude to it in detail in connection with what may. It is to be feared, seem an unworthy book, but we cannot refrain from taking this, the earliest opportunity of acknowledging our obligations. The Admiralty lent the Expedition a lieutenant on full pay for navigation and survey. The Royal Society honoured it by bestowing a grant of £100, and the British Association by appointing a committee to further its interests accompanied by a small gift Valuable scientific instruments were lent by both the Admiralty and Royal Geographical Society. We are indebted to Sir Hercules Reed and Captain T. A. Joyce of the Ethnological Department of the British Museum for the initial suggestion and much personal help. In our own University of Oxford, The practical sympathy of Dr. Marat has been fully given from the time the project was first mooted, till he read the proofs of the scientific part of this work. We owe more to such encouragement for any success attained than perhaps he himself realises. Mr. Henry Balfour has placed us, and all who are interested in the subject, under the greatest obligation for his work on our results, which has thrown a flood of light onto the culture of Easter Island, and has, in perhaps greater degree than anything else, made the expedition seem worthwhile. Dr. Rivers of Cambridge kindly undertook the position of correspondent, in connection with the Committee of the British Association, and has put at our disposal his great knowledge of the Pacific. Dr. Haddon has also been good enough to allow us to avail of his intimate acquaintance with its problems. Dr. Corney has rendered constant and unique assistance with regard to the accounts of Easter Island. Our thanks are due to Dr Seligman for kind interest, to Professor Keith for his report on the two Pitcairn Islanders who returned with the yacht, and his examination of our osteological collection, to Dr Thomas of the Geological Survey for his report of the rocks brought back. And not least to Mr Sidney Ray, who has given most valuable time to our vocabularies of the language. With regard to our journeyings and labours in the field, we are under great obligation to Mr Redwoods, the Chilean minister in London, through whose representations his government were good enough to grant us. Special facilities in their ports. The expedition owes much to Messrs. Balfour and Williamson of London and the firms connected with them in Chile, California, and New York, most especially to Messrs. Williamson and Balfour and Valparaiso for their permission to visit Easter Island and help throughout. We are also very grateful to the manager of the ranch, Mr. Percy Edmonds, for his practical aid on the island. It has been impossible in the compass of this book to express our gratitude to all of those who gave help and hospitality on both the outward and homeward voyage. We can only ask them to believe that we do not forget and that the friendship of many is, we trust, a permanent possession. For professional help in the production of this book, it is a pleasure to acknowledge the skill and patience of Miss A. Hunter, who has assisted in preparing the sketches, and of Mr. Gear, President of the Royal Photographic Society who has worked up the negatives, also Mr. F. Bachelor of the Royal Geographical Society, who has drawn all the maps. It has not, as will be readily understood, been always an easy matter to write of such different interests amidst the urgent claims and stupendous events since the time of our return. But if any soul rendered sad by the war or anxiously facing the problems of a new world finds a few hours rest by the blue of the sea or face to face with the everlasting calm of the great statues then it will give very real happiness to you. Chapter 1 The Start While we went to Easter Island the building and equipping of the yacht. All the seashore is lined with the numbers of stone idols, with their backs turned towards the sea, which caused us no little wonder, because we saw no tool of any kind for working these figures. So wrote a century and a half ago, one of the earliest navigators to visit the island of Easter in the southeast Pacific. Ever since that day, passing ships have found it incomprehensible that a few hundred natives should have been able to make, move and erect numbers of great stone monuments, some of which are over 30 feet in height. They have marveled and passed on As the world's traffic has increased, Easter Island has still stood outside its routes, quiet and remote, with its story undeciphered. What were these statues, of which the present inhabitants know nothing? Were they made by their ancestors in forgotten times, or by an earlier race? Whence came the people who reached this remote spot? Did they arrive from South America, two miles to the eastward, or did they sail against the prevailing wind from the distant islands to the west? It has even been conjectured that Easter Island is all that remains of a sunken continent. Fifty years ago, the problem was increased by the discovery of this mysterious land of wooden tablets bearing an unknown script, they too have refused to yield their secret. When, therefore, we decided to see the Pacific before we died and asked the anthropological authorities at the British Museum what work there remained to be done, the answer was Easter Island, It was a much larger undertaking than had been contemplated. We had doubts of our capacity for so important a venture. And at first, the decision was against it. But we hesitated and were lost. Then followed the problem how to reach the goal. The island belongs to Chile. And the only regular communication, if regular, it can be called, was a small sailing vessel sent out by the Chilean company, who used the island as a ranch. She went sometimes once a year, sometimes not so often, and only remained there sufficient time to bring off the wool crop we felt that the work on Easter ought to be accompanied with the possibility of following up clues elsewhere in the islands and that to charter any such vessel as could be obtained on the Pacific coast for the length of time we required her would be unsatisfactory, both from the pecuniary standpoint. And from that of comfort. It was therefore decided, as Scoresby is a keen yachtsman, that it was worth while to procure in England a little ship of our own, adapted to the purpose, and to sail out in her. As the Panama Canal was not open, and the route by Suez would be no longer. The way would lie through the Magellan Straits. Search for a suitable vessel in England was fruitless, and it became clear that to get what we wanted, we must build. The question of general size and arrangement had first to be settled, and then matters of detail. It is unfortunate that the precise knowledge which was acquired of the exact number of inches necessary to sleep on, to sit on, and to walk along, is not again likely to be useful. The winter of 1910 to 11 was spent over this work, but the professional assistance obtained proved to be incompetent, and we had to begin again. The final architect of the little yacht was Mr. Charles Nicholson of Gosport, and the plans were completed the following summer. They were for a vessel of schooner rig and auxiliary motor power. The length overall was 90 feet, and the water line 72 feet. Her beam was 20 feet. The gross tonnage was 91, and the yacht tonnage was 126. The vessel was designed in four compartments, with a steel bulkhead between each of the divisions, so that in case of accident it would be possible to keep her afloat. Aft was the little chart room, which was the pride of the ship. When we went on board Magnificent Yachts, which could have carried our little vessel as a lifeboat, and found the navigation being done in the public rooms, we smiled with superiority. Out of the chart room were the navigator's sleeping quarters, and in the overhang of the stern, the sail locker. The next compartment was given to the engines, and made into a galvanized iron box in case of fire. It contained a motor engine for such work as navigation in and out of harbour, and traversing belts of calm. This was of 38 HP and run-off paraffin as petrol was disallowed by the insurance. It gave her five and a half knots. In the same compartment was the engine for the electric light. In addition to the yacht had steam heating. The spaces between the walls of the engine box and those of the ship were given to lamps and to boatswain stores. Then came the center of the ship, containing the quarters of our scientific party. The middle portion of this was raised three or four feet for the whole length, securing first a deck house, and then a heightened roof for the saloon below, an arrangement which was particularly advantageous, as no portholes were allowed below decks. Leaving us dependent on skylights and ventilators. Entering from without, two or three steps led down into the deck house, which formed part of the saloon, but at a higher level. It was my chief resort throughout the voyage. On each side was a settee, which was on the level of the deck and thus commanded a view through portholes and door of what was passing outside. One of these settees was served as a berth in hot weather. A small companion connected the deck house with the saloon below. The latter ran across the width of the ship. It also had full-length settees both sides, and at the end of each was a chiffonier. On the port side was the dinner table, which swung so beautifully that the fiddles were seldom used, and the thermos for the navigating officer could be left happily on it all night. Starboard was a smaller table, fitted for writing, and a long bookshelf ran along the top of the foreside. On the after side of the saloon, a double cabin opened out of it, and a passage led to two single cabins in the bathroom. The cabins were rather larger than the ordinary staterooms, a mail steamer, and the arrangements, of course, more ample. Every available cranny was utilised for drawers and lockers, and in going ashore it was positive pain to see the waste of room under beds and sofas, and behind washing stands. My personal accommodation was a chest of drawers and hanging wardrobe, besides the drawers under the berth and various lockers. Returning to the saloon... A door forard opened into the pantry, which communicated with the galley above. Situated on deck for the sake of coolness, Forard again was a whole section given to the stores, and beyond in the bows, a roomy forecastle. The yacht had three boats, a lifeboat which contained a small motor engine. A cutter and a dinghy. When we were at sea, the two former were placed on deck, but the dinghy, except on one occasion only, was always carried in the davits, where she triumphantly survived all eventualities, a visible witness to the buoyancy of the ship. While the plans were being completed, Search was being made for a place where the vessel should be built, for though nominally a yacht, the finish and build of the solent would have been out of place. It had been decided that she should be of wood, as easier to repair in case of accident where coral reefs and other unseen dangers abound. But the building of wooden ships is nearly extinct. The West Country was visited and an expedition made to Dundee and Aberdeen, but even there, the old home of the whalers, ships are now built of steel. Finally, we fixed on Whitstable, from which place such vessels still ply round the coast. The keel was laid in the autumn of 1911 and the following spring we took up our abode there to watch over her and there in May 1912 she first took the water, being christened by the rider in approved fashion. I name this ship Mana. And may the blessing of God go with her and all who sail in her. A ceremony not to be performed without a lump in the throat. The choice of a name had been difficult. We had wished to give her one born by some ship of Dr. Scoresby, the Arctic Explorer, a friend of my husband's family whose name he received but none of them proved to be suitable. The object was to find something which was both simple and uncommon. All appellations that were easy to grasp seemed to have been already adopted, while those that were unique lent themselves to error. How would it do in a cable was the regulation test. Finally... We hit on mana, which is a word well known to anthropologists, and has the advantage of being familiar throughout the South Seas. We generally translated it somewhat freely as good luck. It means more strictly, supernatural power. A Polynesian would, for instance, describe the common idea of the effect of a horseshoe by saying that the shoe had manna. From a scientific standpoint, manna is probably the simplest form of religious conception. The yacht flew the burgee of the Royal Cruising Club. From the time the prospective expedition became public, we received a considerable amount of correspondence from strangers. Some of it were from those who had special knowledge of the subject and was highly valued. Other letters had a comic element, being from various young men, who appeared to think that our few births might be at the disposal of anyone who wanted to see the world. One letter dated from a newspaper office, stated that its writer had no scientific attainments, but would be glad to get up any subject required in the time before sailing. The qualification of another for the post of steward was that he would be able to print the menus in ball programs. The most quaint experience was in connection with a correspondent, who gave a good name and address, and offered to put at our disposal some special knowledge on the subject of native law, which he had collected as governor of one of the South Sea Islands. On learning our country address, he wrote that he was about to become the guest of some of our neighbors, and would call upon us. It subsequently transpired that they knew nothing of him, but that he had written to them giving our name. He did in fact turn up at our cottage during our absence, and obtained an excellent tea at the expense of the caretaker. The next we heard of him was from the keeper of a small hotel in the neighborhood of Whitstable where he had run up a large bill on the strength of a statement that he was one of our expedition, and we found later that he had shown a friend over the yacht while she was building, giving out he was a partner of her husband's. We understand that after we started he appeared in the county court at the instance of the unfortunate innkeeper. After much trouble we ultimately selected two colleagues from the older universities. The arrangement with one of these, an anthropologist, was unfortunately a failure and ended up at the Cape Verde Islands. The other a geologist, Mr. Frederick Lowly Corry, took up intermediate work in India, and subsequently joined us in South America. The Admiralty was good enough to place at our disposal a lieutenant on full pay for navigation, survey, and tidal observation. This post was ultimately filled by Lieutenant D.R. Ritchie. With regard to the important matter of the crew, it was felt that neither merchant, seaman, nor yacht hands would be suitable, and a number of men were chosen from the low-staffed fishing fleet. Subsequent delays, however, proved deleterious, The prospective dangers grew in size, and the only one who ultimately sailed with us was a boy, Charles C. Geoffrey, who was throughout a loyal and valued member of the expedition. The places of the other men were supplied by a similar class from Brixham, who justified the selection. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy To Sleep podcast. Until then, good night.